Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, this is part two of how did I get to be a sex addict? And as I said before, I think it's really useful to understand where it comes from, how we get here, uh, to reduce shame and to have insight. But as always, this is not going to fix the problem. Insight alone availed us nothing. Our job is to understand it so that we can come to peace with it. But then there's all the work to do in changing the behavior and living differently. Much of the rest of this series is devoted to helping people find recovery and healing. This particular episode is about how did I get to be this way? Why do I have this problem? And where does it all come from? I want to move to kids and help you walk through what this means as a child. So when you're a kid, there are basically three things you need. You need food and water. You know, if nobody feeds you and nobody waters you, you're not going to make it as a kid. You need nutrition. When you're little, you need shelter. You know, even in Southern California, where the weather's beautiful, you can't leave a baby on a beach. They have to have a bed, they have to have a cover, they have to be in good temperature, they have to be sheltered. And there's one more thing that little kids, infants need to survive, and that's love. Now, little kids don't know the word love. You know, they don't know any words, really. But they know what it's like to be held. They know what it's like to have someone say, you look sad. Let me, they know what it's like to have someone throw you in there and say, you're so cute and look at this. And they know what the feeling that that, all that stuff evokes inside of them. And later on, they realize, oh, that's what love is to be held, to be validated, to be stimulated. And how do I get that? I get that by just existing as an infant. I get fed and sheltered and loved just because I exist. Uh, As I said, a child should be the center of the universe. They need that narcissism. They need to feel that way in order to develop adult self-esteem. By the way, kids who don't get that, they end up looking narcissistic at 50. And narcissism at four is a really good thing. Narcissism at 44, not such a good thing. Because we're still wandering around like that little kid saying, I know I'm important. I know I'm I'm special. Why isn't anybody paying attention to me? And it's sort of like, um, I think in group today, one of the things I heard uh, someone say is, you know, those needs are never, ever going to be met. Someone said, you know, tell me what to do. Like they're wandering around like a little kid wanting someone to help. And the the thing is, and this is the sad part of 
I think recovery and therapy in this arena where we are is that no one's ever going to, we're never going to be seven again. No one's ever going to come along and say, I see what you need and let me meet it for you. And you're so adorable and coochie, coochie, coo. We're actually going to have to ask. And that's something we're not particularly good at. It's something we learned not to do when we were young and we're sticking to it. So think about this. If a little baby, a toddler doesn't get fed, they don't make it right. Pretty clear. If they don't get sheltered and taken care of in a reasonable temperature and put to bed and cleaned, they're not going to live. And if a child doesn't get love, they may survive physically, but emotionally they will not. And there are many stories and research about kids that ended up in an orphanage, let's say, at a young age, and they were fed and someone gave them a doll and someone changed their diaper, but no one played with them. No one enjoyed them no one celebrated them no one loved them and a lot of those kids are in jail a lot of those kids are going to treatment programs like ours because they never learned what it felt like to be loved we use this term failure to thrive for kids to walk around that way another way to think about it would be like infantile depression and yes babies get depressed there's research about kids who are in cribs you know in an orphanage type situation where the child will turn away from the caregiver to the wall and they don't want to be fed and they don't want to be held because they've given up and when you see a three-year-old who doesn't want to be held or fed uh, you really get in part what it was like to grow up like we did so i ask you now that you're what 30 40 50 whatever 24 whatever age you are you're not children anymore but do you still need food. You know, you're not going to make it unless you eat then and now. You still need shelter. You still need a safe place to put your head and a place where temperature is controlled and, you know, all that good stuff. Well, guess what? We can't survive without love as adults either. And what I mean by love is being responded to, being noticed, being appreciated, being valued. All those needs, when they're met, leave us feeling loved just like the kid when they're held up and and coochie cooed and played with and you know and 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 responded to that's what they learn is love here's the thing right it's not just as a child we need love to survive throughout our lives and as adults we us addicts have replaced our need for love with our need for with with intensity distraction we fill up all these empty needs that are, of course, never going to be met now because we're never going to be seven again. But we fill up all these unmet childhood needs, not adult needs, but childhood needs with intensity, with strangers, with distractions, with paper dolls or porn, as you might call it, because we're not letting ourselves get the most essential. We feed ourselves. Most of us shelter ourselves, but we do not let ourselves get love because we don't ask. And even when we get it, we don't think we deserve it. Because, and by the way, as an adult, even if you're getting the love that you deserve, you don't believe it because, you know, uh, someone, you know, someone loves you, says, oh, you're so sweet and you're so wonderful. I love it when you're around, but we've just come from a massage parlor. Well, we, we're not going to take that love in. We're going to say, well, gosh, that's nice that they appreciate me. But if they knew where I was this afternoon, then I wouldn't get love. So you see, I'm really not. So even when we get what we deserve in adult life, we don't accept it or take it in because of the addiction and knowing things that the other person doesn't. And now we're back to, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. Only now it's being practiced by us as an adult. 
So as I said in childhood, you know, who is the problem? Who is who and who is at fault that I am so lonely and happy? You know, whatever that stuff is. And as I said, it's not mom and it's not dad. It can never be mom and dad because at five years old, I am not psychologically sophisticated enough to imagine what it would be like if those big people really were ignoring me or they didn't come home. I don't have the ability as a child to understand that I would die. I would be that vulnerable. No child. That's why, right, they, they try to prove how important they are by throwing the spoon on the floor because it allows them to feel in control and like they'll never be left or abandoned. So if there's problems, they don't look at mom and dad as being the problem because they cannot see mom and dad as failing them. Because if mama, if they were able to see mom and dad as failing them, then they could die. Then no one would be there for them. Then they were on their own. And that's way too sophisticated for a five-year-old to conclude. So again, mom is not the problem. Dad's or dad is not the problem. It's my needs that are the problem. It's me. And therefore, my very sense of who I am is shamed because my needs, asking for my needs is a vulnerable, intimate thing to do. If you're so busy avoiding the possibility that someone's going to see who you really are, or they're going to not love you anymore, then you wouldn't put yourself in a position of being known or intimate. You would just hide. And boy, is that what we do, right? So what we're talking about, you may hear it in the therapy world, is this idea of attachment, which is how well and how strongly do I bond with my early caregivers? How much do they respond to me and do I interact with them in ways that I feel safe and I'm getting closer and closer? Attachment is about literally how we learn about our lovability, how we learn, as I said, our self-esteem. How deeply do my earliest caregivers mirror, mirror me, pay attention to me? How deeply bonded am I with them? And what I said was early disturbances in attachment appear to be one of the root causes of addiction. Because our compulsivity, our obsession, and our need for control does give us some relief from what's underneath that, which is pain and rage and fear of being empty and no one loving us because we never learned it. We never learned healthy intimacy. We never learned what it took for others to reach out to us. And boy, there is a lot of angry, hurt little boys running to sex workers and spending their days looking at porn. Because who would want to go through life feeling like no one really wants to be with you. And no matter what you do, you can't get those needs met. That would make me pretty pissed off. And so we find ways to that are compulsive or impulsive to distract ourselves. And then they take on a life of their own. You know, I'll just tell you personally that when I was growing up, I was probably eight or nine years old. My parents would put me in my room at six o'clock and lock the door. Now I was way too old to be in my room at six o'clock. But the truth is, my parents didn't want a kid and they certainly didn't want a kid around in the evening. So they stuck me in a room and they closed the door. Well, I was up from six to 10 with nothing to do. I didn't even have a TV in my room at the time. So I learned, we had an encyclopedia that was in my room. And because of my skill set and who I am, I read that forward and back and forward and back. I must've read the encyclopedia four times because it took me somewhere. It took me out of that room. It took me out of that longing. It took me out of that situation and it put me somewhere else. I used to stare out the window with a little pad and I would look at the taillights of the cars. And if I knew what the car was by its taillights, I would check off a little box for myself. Why the hell was I doing that? Because I needed to be validated. And there wasn't anybody there to say, good for you, good kid. But I could say it to myself. 
I could move into fantasy and say, good job. You knew what you knew what car that was. You know, you're a smart kid because nobody else was doing it for me. And so I learned through fantasy and going in my head and rewarding myself via fantasy and intensity that I could feel better. And I learned about that long before I knew anything about sex. I learned to use fantasy and compulsive behavior, watching every car that goes by, as a means of being able to not have to, as a means of not having to feel this emptiness, this loneliness. Who wants to feel like nobody wants me and I'm locked? And by the way, being locked in your room when you're six, trust me, when you put your ear to the door, you can hear the family and they're having fun and they're doing things and you're not invited. The pain of surviving that meant I had to find something to distract me, and I did. So here is one of our more famous therapists who's not living anymore, and I love that she said this. It's a little fancy, but nonetheless. She said, the child who is used and or abandoned emotionally by their parent has the chance to develop his intellectual capacities undisturbed, but not the world of his emotions, and this will have far-reaching consequences for his well-being. I don't know about you, but I see myself in that. I can get jobs. I can go to graduate school. I can read the the encyclopedia backwards and forwards. My brain is pretty darn good, but emotionally, not so much. And this is where, you know, you end up with the Bill Clintons of the world. You know, someone who became president of the United States and everyone interested and, you know, more attention than anyone else in the world, but it wasn't enough. His intellectual abilities and what that, you know, Oxford scholar, I don't care whether you like him or you didn't like him. It's not a political statement. It's just, here's this really smart guy who's reached the pinnacle of our culture. And he did it by going to Oxford and going to stand all this stuff. And it's not enough. He has to get a blowjob in his office because it would never be enough. And by the way, all that stress means he's not attending to his needs. He's not spending time with his family. He's not doing things that would soothe and comfort and reward. So what is he going to do to feel better quickly and move on? He's going to get a blowjob in his office. And actually, I believe that wasn't sex for that man. I think it was comfort and distraction, even though it was sex. (laughs) So one of my therapists said this to me once about how I learned to not believe that I was loved, how I learned that I had to take care of myself and no one else was going to be there. You know, you reach out once or twice with all your, or 50 times with all your sincerity and all your heart for all your needs and nothing comes back. Why would you ever go there again? There's nothing more painful than loving into nothing, into emptiness. And in order to avoid that pain, I will simply not fully let myself open up and love and be vulnerable because I don't want to have an experience where no matter how I, how present I am, how open I am, that there's nothing there. And the problem is, of course, as adults, is we're wandering around looking for someone to fill that void that we grew up with, and it's not fillable now. We're not going to be seven. We're not going to be 11. We're not going to be four. And the needs and the desperation and the emptiness that carry through those times to this moment, we have to grieve over. And I know for me, that was the hardest thing about that point in therapy was I finally realized, oh my God, no one is going to do this for me. It's too late. And there's the grief and there's the hope. The grief is, you know, what the hell happened? And how could I have not get these? Why didn't I have a dad? Why was he never there? You know, why was I taking care of my mother when, when she was taking pills and I was giving? I mean, that's the grief is. I didn't get any of the things I needed. And 
and they're never going to happen now. But beyond that grief, once I stop looking and searching and will someone please take care of me and rescue me and do it for me? And when I stop doing all that, the hope is, wow, maybe I can find a way of loving that won't leave me feeling so empty. But I got to put down the needs I had as a little boy. Because until I can get to the other side of being healthy, I have to acknowledge in that very sad way that no one ever did that for me and they never will. And I have to stop carrying around that empty bowl in my hands saying, will you fill this up? Will you fill this up? Will you fill this up? Because no one's going to. They will fill me up in ways that are adult. So, you know, and I guess I'll give you an example of that, uh, of love. When I was little, I needed to be changed. I needed to be comforted. I needed to be played with. I needed to be stimulated. I need to be cheered for. And all of those things sort of ended up becoming what I thought of as love, you know? But I'm 60 years old. I don't want anyone to change my diaper. I don't want anyone to throw me up in the air. I don't want to pay, draw a picture of a poopy and anyone. I mean, that's, that's not what I want today, but I still want to be loved. And I don't, we walk around wanting that childlike expression of love. Please adore me no matter what. Um, please think I'm the most special thing in the world. Please pay attention to me all the time. Those are childlike needs. And they're never going to be met in adult life. But if I get past that, then I can begin to get my adult needs met. And just as much as I needed someone to cheer for me as a child, I need someone to cheer for me as an adult. But I don't want them to do it in the same way that they might have when I was little. I want them to do it in ways that reflect how old I am now and my needs now. So again, we never stop needing love. It's just the form that it takes if we allow ourselves to grow or if we can grow. The form that love takes changes. We don't recognize that, but it does. So what are we out to say to ourselves about the fact that we need these relationships where you depend on me and I depend on you and I rely on you and you rely on me? What do we say about the real need we have to move forward? How do we avoid letting ourselves know how much that is needed? And, you know, these are the things I hear you guys say, I hate that I'm so needy. I just hate it. I hate my neediness. I'm so needy all the time. I need all this attention or, you know, whatever that is. I hate my addict because that's the part of me that always pulls on my sleeve and wants more and wants more. And, you know, the problem is, is not that we haven't learned to shove that addict far enough in the corner. The problem is, is that we haven't learned to love the part of ourselves that is so longing, so empty, so needful that that part of us will send us running out to strangers getting diseases. We have to embrace that part of us. The addict helped us survive. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. I had no idea how to get any of my emotional needs met when I was 19 or 30. Well, maybe by 30. By 25, I knew how to distract myself. I knew how to keep myself busy. I knew how to be excited. And later on, when I finally stopped acting out, I thought, good, the bad part of me is gone. I'm done with that badness. You know, I don't have to deal with that anymore. But what was underneath that 
badness, that addict wasn't some part of me that wanted to lead me into harm. That's how I interpret it. What that child part of me wants is to be paid attention to. And most of all, for me to pay attention. So when I want to act out now, and I do 35 years into recovery, I don't say to myself, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I, I'm, the, I'm one of the teachers. I've written books. How could I feel like that? I say, wow, I must be really needing something. And I'm not getting it right now. And I wonder what it is I need. And I don't even have to know. What I do need, as I said to you before, is you cannot meet your own needs. Not really. You need other people. So here's the answer. I'm sitting there and I feel like acting out and I know I need something. I don't even need to think about what it is. I just need to, I just need to know that when I'm needing something, I got to go talk to somebody and I got to talk to them about what's going on in my life. And maybe my need will get met just because they'll notice or they'll see it. Our addict is pulling on our sleeve. It's a little child inside saying, no one paid attention to me. Will you pay attention to me, please? But we're running around looking for other people to do it. We hate that part of us that's so needful that leaves us doing all this crazy stuff that is ruining our lives. But that part of us, what it's really asking for, there's nothing wrong with being, with needing. There's nothing wrong with needing others to meet our, meet our needs or comfort us or support us. or about. What is a problem is that we avoid the addict and we say, shut the fuck up. I don't need to hear from you. I'm going to take care of it myself. And since we don't listen, I think that little part of us feels less and less and less, and we get more and more and more numb because what we're really doing is reinforcing what we grew up with, which is don't need, don't ask, don't even know because you're not worth it. And again, my adult acting out clearly tells me that no one should love me because look what I'm doing now. And it reinforces, and it becomes, and it reinforces, oh yeah, that's the part I can hate. It's that addict part, but what it used to be is that little kid part who needed attention and was hurting and no one came along. No one opened the door to my room. So I learned to read a lot. I learned to stare out the window a lot. I learned to distract myself because no one was going to come along and make that kid feel better. So now as an addict, I think, okay, well, I know how to fix my needs. I'll just go out and distract myself. But that is like eating potato chips. When you're hungry, acting out is like eating potato chips when you're hungry. It may for the moment feel the emptiness inside of you, may distract you, may taste good. But by the time you get home, you're probably going to be ready for dinner. And if all you have at home is more potato chips, you're going to get sicker and sicker and sicker because you're not meeting your body's needs. And it's the same emotionally. You know, our sexual acting out and all that stuff is potato chips. You know, for the moment, temporarily, it will shut up our needfulness, but it doesn't really quiet the greater needs. We've never really come to terms with that. And really, our acting out is walking around saying, will you fix it? Will you fix it? Will you make me better? Will you tell me what to do? When there isn't anyone who's going to do that in the way that we would have liked in the past. Now we have to do it ourselves. And I hate that. I hate that I have to be responsible to get the things I need from other people. Here's the narcissism. Why don't they just see it? Why don't they just see how special I am or how wonderful I am or what a great car I have or what a great job I have? Can't they see how important I am or how special I am? Or at the other end, which is also narcissism, can't they see what a piece of shit I am and how unworthy I am and I'm the worst in the world and I'm totally unworthy of love? It doesn't matter. Both of those messages say... I don't expect that anybody is going to need me to hate me or love me because 
they'll see that I'm not lovable or they'll see that they should love me merely because of how I appear in the world. And again, that, that being narcissistic and getting us to pay attention to us, getting others, and I'm getting is the right word, getting other people to pay attention to us, that doesn't meet our needs. Because we know that if we weren't cheering or showing them our new car or telling them how terrible we were, they wouldn't come over. We don't believe they would. So we do all this stuff to get their attention. And by the way, when we get it, we don't want, you can tell me how amazing I am for all the books I've written. Doesn't cross my mind. It's just something I did because that's not what I need is validation for the hard work I've done. I did that hard work because it was a great distraction on a lot of levels from having to feel anything. And it met my needs for validation and profession. You know, it did meet some needs, but not relational needs. Not really. So as I said, our needs are shamed, but I still have to get them met because I'm human. And so the only way that I can get them met is when I feel like I'm in control. And that's something that we can never get. I think that addicts, all addicts, but sex addicts in particular, we desperately want something that we will never get. It's like that guy, it isn't Sisyphus, he was pulling, pushing that rock uphill and downhill, it would roll down on him, Greek, Greek figure. I, mean, I never remember his name, and probably you'll throw it at me. But there, there's, guy, there's this guy, you know, and he's forever hungry, and there are grapes hanging over his head, and he reaches up for the grapes, and they get higher, and he can never reach them. And he's forever thirsty, and there's water below him, but every time he reaches down to cup his hands to get some water, the water goes down. So he's forever hungry. He can see the food and he can't reach it. He's forever thirsty and he sees the water, but he can't get to it. And I think that is us to a T because what we are looking for is an oxymoron. It's something that can never go together. And here it is, controllable intimacy. Those words don't go together. You cannot control how someone feels about you, how close they feel to you, whether they love you or not, that you can't either they do or they don't, and you can't make them even though we think, now we can try to buy people, but that means that that's not really intimacy. Because intimacy, by the way, is showing someone what I need. It's making myself vulnerable and taking the risk that they may not respond at all. They may tell me, I don't have time. I can open up to someone and they can deeply disappoint me. That's why intimacy is not controllable because I can't control when I make myself intimate and vulnerable and open up to someone. I cannot control that they're going to respond in the way that I want them to, but I want to because I don't ever want to be intimate and vulnerable and love and to avoid. So I don't go to the forms of intimacy where I let myself be known and I could really get my needs met like people we love because they could cause us the most pain. But again, but turning to people where I'm paying them or they're on a screen or I'm having an affair with them or, you know, whatever it is, I'm in control there. No sex worker has ever let me down. (laughs) You know, they may not have great sex, but they never let me feel bad about myself. Not when I was with them. They never made me feel unlovable or, or like I was looking for something I could never get. You know, for the moment, they did what I wanted them to do and I paid them for it. So they were never going to let me down. They may not have been what I wanted, but they were never going to let me down because I had this idea of what I was doing was intimate and I was completely in control. When it's out of control, when we don't have the ability to manipulate or use um, or shine or pay or whatever it is, someone to respond to us in the way we hope they will, then 
we're taking that risk. And that's what real intimacy is. And that is what every one of your spouses are asking for. Will you tell me more about you? Tell me what's going on. Just be honest with me. Just let me in. Why won't you listen to me? What are they really saying? They're saying, I want to have an intimate relationship with you. And we're saying, uh, yeah, but I'm busy. I'm reading the encyclopedia right now. And I'm going to look out the window and see which cars are going by. You know, and when you go to sleep, we don't, you know, you, you may have heard me say, and I absolutely believe we are the people who are starving. And there is a banquet behind us, and that is our home and the people we love and the foundation of our lives. That is the banquet behind us. But we don't believe it. We sit with our back to the, or we crawl with our back to the banquet and are picking at crumbs. And people say to us, oh, well, there's a whole banquet behind you, all this love. And we're like, yeah, but there's a crumb right here. And I can see the crumb, but I don't really know what's back there. And so we never really turn around and intimately open up to everything that we could have because we don't want it to be what we have, what we thought it might be. And we would rather eat dirt than ask for help. Addicts would rather eat dirt than ask for help because we do not want to. Well, I already told you. So in really simple terms, addicts don't learn about what we need. Addicts don't learn from what we're feeling. We don't learn what we're feeling. And we don't learn that that's information that tells us we need to do something. So we don't know what we're feeling and we don't know what to do with it. And then I certainly don't know or want to need anything from anyone else. So I say, I'm fine on my own. I can do it. I'm, I don't need any help. I can handle it. And then no one ever gets the chance like our spouses want to. They want to be there for us. They want to show up for us. They want us to open up and tell them what they need and what we need. And, you know, if they're not furious at us, they're going to try to show up for that if they can. But we don't let them. Most addicts would rather eat dirt than ask for help. And asking for help means acknowledging that I have needs of other people. And to me, this guides every stage of our process. At the very beginning, the reason you're in a house together working as a group rather than being an individual work all the time is I want you to learn how to lean on each other, how to ask for help, how to tell people what's going on with you and have them turn toward you and respond and relate and engage. What we're doing is the beginning of on some level for some of us. You may have get started in 12-step meetings, by the way. I think 12-step meeting is a wonderful place because in my entire upbringing, I would raise my hand and I would wave it around. And here's an example. I'd come home from school and I'd say, dad, dad, guess what happened to school today? And my dad would say, well, whatever it was, I'm sure it was amazing, but let me tell you about my day. And I realized like, what is the point of asking for the attention, the validation, the appreciation or whatever it is that I was asking for? Because what I got was having to take care of him. So I don't let, and that was my family. If you yelled loud enough, if you were a really squeaky wheel, someone might pay attention to you. But I learned just like you guys did, what do I need to do to get the attention I want? And we'll get it, but we don't get it in the, from doing and acting the ways that we would like, that we would like to, for it to come to us. So way back when in the nineties, I was working for this guy named Patrick Carnes, and he was then the leader of the field. and. I was working for him. And in the old days, if you worked in a hospital or treatment center, this is how it went. If there were a lot of clients, you worked a lot of hours. 
If there weren't a lot of clients, you had to take vacation time. <laughs> That's how the business was at that time. And in that scenario, I got a raise and a promotion. And I was like, oh my God, no one gets this. And not only that, but I did it in the sex addiction unit. Dr. Karn said this, and I was so excited. And I ran to my therapist and I said, because I had therapy that day. And I'm like, you'll never guess what happened. I, I, like, and I was, you know, I was like a little agitated. I was like, you'll never believe it. And Dr. Karn said this, and you know how the hospital is. And they said that, and, and this happened. And, and my therapist being who therapists are said, hmm. And that was it. And I thought, really? Is that all you have to say to me? Hmm? Like, what's wrong with you? What do I pay you for in my head? So I thought, oh, I know what the problem is. Just like in my family, I need to say it louder. I need to make it really clear what I'm needing and what I want. I need to put it out there so he can't miss it. And so I told the whole story again, only with bigger expletives and more explanation, exclamation points. And I made it really clear to him how special and important that day was and how I'd been treated. And he turned to me and he said, Hey, Rob, I have this feeling you need something from me. Do you know what it is? And I said to myself, yeah, I need you to be a decent fucking human being and cheer for me. But I didn't because I trusted this man. And we had spent a number of years working together. And I knew there was something in what he was saying that mattered. So I sat back and I put away my frustration that he wasn't immediately responding the way I wanted him to. and. I thought, what do I really need from him? And I swear to God, I turned red from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes. I was so, so ashamed. And my therapist said, do you know what you need from me? Because, you, you know, you look a little different. You kind of turn red. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I do know what I need. And he said, can you say it? And I was like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm just too ashamed. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't tell you that. I can't tell anyone this. And he said, well... Could you write it down? Good therapist, right? He said, could you write it down? And he gave me his business card and a pen. And this is what I wrote on the back of this card, what I realized that I needed from him. All I wanted was him to cheer for me. All I wanted was for him to be proud of me, to tell me that I'd done a good job. But the only way I learned how to get that is by waving my arms back and forth and saying, look at me, look at me, look what happened. And ultimately, that's kind of manipulative because I'm going to get you to give me what I want without even saying it. I'm just going to wave my arms back and forth or I'm going to drive a fancy car and you're going to say to me, wow, you're important, you're special. But that doesn't mean anything because what I did things to get you to give me this. What if I just said to you, you know, some really good things happened to me and you know, I kind of want you to be proud of me because we work together and you're, you're one of the most important men in my life. I couldn't because the need to have a man say that I, that they were proud of me and that I was important. That got shamed away a long time ago when my dad said, well, I'm glad you had a nice day at school, but let me tell you about my day. I learned something, which is you're going to get hurt if you ask for your need for your father to be proud of you, to appreciate you, to cheer for you, that is not going to go well. I'm smart. I learned my lessons really well. But how do I get that need met now? I disavowed it. I, I got shamed of it. I threw it away. I, don't, I can take care of that myself. But when confronted with the reality that someone was actually openly 
saying to me, hey, I'm right here. What do you need? There it was, all that shame, because I shouldn't have to ask for this. I shouldn't want this. And if I do, I'm going to get hurt. So it's my fault for wanting it. There is all the shame. But when I, what I wrote on his card was what I really wanted was him to say, attaboy, good for you. Keep going. But I didn't know how. Now I do. And everything in this lecture comes out of that one moment where I realized what I needed and he helped me understand it. And then I was able to think about, I wonder how many other ways I act out to try to get what I need in some way without simply understanding what it is and asking for it. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.